equally, which is what we need to do. And it was ready for the return of Christ Jesus. So in the second letter then, what we see is Paul continues his praise of this young church there at Thessalonica and provides them with more information concerning the second coming of Christ Jesus as well as an admonition to the church to deal with disorderly members. Just think about it. Even in the first century, there were disorderly members, okay? So like uh, his other epistles, this is one... This one, rather, is neatly organized and broken down into three areas, if you will, three very clear areas. And we have them listed on the board. Chapter 1, what we will be looking at next week, uh, actually tonight, deals with encouragement, uh, which we see at the the 12 verses there. Uh, Chapter 2 deals with education. Chapter 3 deals with exhortation. So we turn our attention then to the encouragement section of the, of the letter of Second Thessalonians. And if you turn in your Bibles, please, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. Verses 1 through 12 of Second Thessalonians. And the Bible reads, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flame and fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of this of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at this book, this letter here, the chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, we've just finished reading the entire chapter itself. We want to go back to verses 1 and 2, because there we see the salutation that was presented to them. Now, this is where we find internal evidence, if you will. This is where we find internal evidence that Paul is the author of these letters. But there are also external evidences of of things like references about Paul's uh, authorship and other documents written at the same period of time. Uh, 
Note that when Jesus' name is used here, it is in the same divine position as God. God is the one who gives grace. God is the one who gives peace. The point is, the only combination, the only combination that can produce grace and peace is the relationship between God and his church, which is in Christ Jesus. So we turn our attention to verses 3 and 4. We're going to read that again. We, always for <clears throat> we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we always boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So Paul, he wants to give thanks. He gives thanks, I should say. Not for what they have given him, but rather he gives thanks for who and what they are becoming in Christ Jesus. They are growing in strength. They are growing in faith. They are growing in love. And they are doing all of these things despite the persecutions that they are enduring at this time. And Paul goes about the business as he writes this letter of expressing the joy of every father, if you will, every farmer, every inventor, every artist, every teacher who sees the product of his work and training that's, and, and being admired, if you will, and approved by others. So I answer this question right here. And this is not for the youngsters like that. And I see some youngsters over in that group. This is not for the youngsters. This is a question I have for the mature Christians, the older Christians. And the question is this. What would you say is the true reward of a mature Christian here on earth? The true reward of the mature Christian here on earth. And I made sure I category I specified here on earth because I know we want to go to heaven on that one but let's, let's work on earth for a minute the true reward of mature Christians here on earth I'm sorry contentment okay a lot less fear okay peace young Christians that's the one I was aiming for young Christians and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Thank you. The true reward of mature Christians is seeing younger Christians whom they have mentored to grow in Christ. Think about that for a moment. Now, there's a flip side to this. Some of those young Christians that we work with as mature Christians, they don't. They don't grow in Christ and that is very painful to the mature Christian. That is very frustrating to the mature Christian. You see, there's a flip side to this. You cannot know the joy of this, and you cannot know the pain of this if you never, as a mature Christian, invested yourself in the growth and development of another person. Just think about that for a moment. You reached out to this individual, you taught them the gospel, and you 
watch them grow as you continue to work with them, as others continue to work with them, and they stay faithful. That is a lot of joy. That is a great reward. And when it doesn't happen, that is a lot of pain. But you know what? But if you've never done it, you wouldn't know one way or the other. So the surest way to grow in joy, the surest way to grow in Christian love is to invest in the development of another. That is what we talk about when we, were, when we talk about evangelism, going out into the world and, and, and making disciples. That's what we're talking about here. We have to get up off our duff, if you will, and go out there and do it. Just don't sit back and expect it to happen by that thing called osmosis. If they drive by the church, they're going to pick it up. Because people drive by this church every day. We have to invest ourselves in one another. That is the whole idea of bearing one another's burdens, showing brotherly love. That's the whole idea. We're working together in this thing. We get to verses 5 through 10. And what we see is Paul is writing about the righteous judgment of God. Verse 5 in particular, he says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. So here we find Paul is going about the business of addressing the suffering that the Thessalonians are experiencing as well as God's righteous judgment concerning it. Now, some of these trials, when we look at this, in that particular time, some of these trials stem from the following things. First, remember they lived in a pagan society. They lived in an area that was really hostile to, to the preaching of Christ. The Jewish leaders harassed them. The false teachers had, some false teachers had creeped in among them and was teaching false doctrine. And then there was the constant temptation by Satan. The constant temptation by Satan for them to just quit, go back to what you were doing in the world, and you'll be much happier. And you'll be much happier. Their trials and challenges to their faith are Eighty-fifth and one, December twenty-fourth, two thousand twenty-three. Are the trials and challenges and whatever we're facing today any different from theirs? Are they? Yes or no? No, they're not. No, they're not. Their trials and challenges to their faith are not much different than what we experience today in our own time in our own culture. Paul talks about religious, uh, talks about righteous judgment, I should say. When he talks about judgment, he's talking about this uh, separation and decision. When he talks about righteousness, he's talking about a decision without any prejudice or malice. So Paul comforts them in their suffering, and he comforts us in our suffering by telling them that their suffering And their perseverance through it serves the greater good of helping establish the church, which tells us this right here. Jerry, I got a question for you. You, I've, I've been reading some papers, and I know way back when, when there was no building on this site, I know Jerry Jones and Marilyn Jones were involved. 
Okay? Now, so I ask you, Jerry, in all of this, was there a cost in establishing this building here? I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about was there a cost? Was there a cost in establishing this building here to be a church of a church in Christ? Yeah, time and effort. Yeah. It's more than just money involved. There was sacrifice. There's a whole so that's a, there was a cost involved in building this man. You know, we come here many years removed and we go, "Okay, this is great." But I was reading the history <laughs> way back when. And there was a lot of sacrifice. There was a lot of energy. There was a lot of effort. It just wasn't something where there's a land, build the building. There was all this stuff they had to go through to get things approved. There was a loan in the neighborhood. I forgot how many millions it was that had to be paid off. And there were people who were here at this time, regardless of what... Regardless of where they, where they were financially in life, they all contributed to the purchasing of this property and paying that bill off. This building has a history. This congregation has a history. And there was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears involved in getting it here. So then, the rest then. So, as I said, there is a cost attached to establishing the kingdom of God on earth. And it began with Christ's suffering. It continues in each generation with the suffering of the church to remain faithful and to remain pure. I mean, the elders here have worked diligently for this, and it hasn't always been easy. So we need to remember that when we suffer in some way in order to serve the church, God is going to be there with us in that he tells them that God not only permits them to suffer on behalf of the church, but he also helps them. He helps us endure it. Remember God's answer to Paul when he cried out about the thorn in his flesh? Remember his answer? It was like, okay, Paul, you're my man. I'm going to take that pain away from you. No, 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 he didn't. He gave Paul the ability to endure it. He told them that in your weakness, in your pain, in your suffering, I am strong. He didn't take it away. He tells them, Paul also tells them that God will punish later those who are making trouble for them now. These and the wicked will suffer later. And the believers, the believers will find relief and rest later. Paul also gives them details concerning the punishment of the wicked in this letter. In 1 Thessalonians, as you remember, Paul talks about what will happen to those who are living and those who have died in Christ when Christ Jesus returns. In 2 Thessalonians, he talks about what will happen to the unfaithful, what will happen to the wicked when Christ Jesus returns. I'll take you to verse 6. What we find in verse 6 is this. God will repay those who afflict Christians and made them suffer. Remember uh, Romans chapter 12 at verse 19. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Remember he said that. Verse 7. So 
I'm going to just take verse 6 and 7 together. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Christ Jesus will come from heaven with angels and with fire. Angels to announce his coming and glory, fire to fulfill his judgment against the wicked. Verses nine and ten, eight and nine. In flame and fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel are the same. These will suffer eternal destruction. They will suffer eternal punishment away from God. It is by God's decree, if you will, and it is a just punishment. Many times I've said, and I think other preachers have said it as well, is that God is very proactive. He's proactive in the sense that he tells us what we need to do in order to be pleasing to him, and he tells us the the consequences of that and he also tells us the consequences of not doing the things that he has spelled out that's being proactive there are no surprises here there are no there's no surprises on judgment day because God is a proactive God and going back to those who do not know God those who disobey these will suffer eternal destruction again and punishment away from God. This is, again, by God's degree. So people who say, well, let me ask you this question. Is God unfair? I see no. Does anybody want to tell me why God is not unfair? Everybody gets treated equal. That is so true. Everybody gets treated equal. But people will say God is unfair, but they're mistaken. To be deprived of the sight of the Lord will be the substance of the punishment, and it will be eternal. I remember being in a class a long time ago in the first uh, uh, Old Testament history class, and I remember one of the students in the class, he, he, had, an, he had an issue with God. God was unfair, God was unjust, God allowed this, God allowed that, God allowed that, God allowed God didn't do that, God didn't do that. But they overlooked the point that God allowed his son to come to this earth to suffer and die for our sins. They overlooked the point that God created us, and when he created us, he put us in a situation where we could win, but we put ourselves in a situation where we lose. Then God put us in another situation again where we could win. And just like the first, the second is like the first. We make the choice. We make the choice. And we can't blame God for that. Verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. All of this will happen. 
All of these things will happen when Christ Jesus comes. The, re- the believers will reflect his glory in that, that the believers will be glorified in their resurrected bodies. The believers will rejoice and they will marvel at his presence because they were faithful in their belief. But the rest, the unbelievers, the wicked, they will be banished from his presence. All of this will happen at once in the twinkling of an eye. Remember how naked Adam and Eve felt when they sinned? That separation is going to be worse than that. That separation is going to be worse than that. So let's close up with uh, verses 11 and 12. Any comments, questions before? Yes. That's exactly right. God is not unfair because we have plenty of warning about what to do and what not to do, and we make the choice. And when we make the choice, the only person we can blame is ourselves, not God. If I decide to go out there right now in this snow, driving 75 or 100 miles an hour down the bar road, I made that choice. The car didn't. That car did not say, James, we're going to go 75, 80 miles now. Down over the road today, okay, okay. And I go, okay, no. I made that the choice with my foot on the accelerator. And I can't blame anyone but myself for that. So verses 11 and 12, anyone else? Verses 11 and 12. And to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our Lord of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul continues here with with his constant prayer for them. He's always praying for them. His prayer request is very specific. That God completes the work that he began in them. That he finishes the thing that he originally called them for through the gospel. God calls us through the gospel. We know that. He calls us to separate ourselves from this world, although we remain in this world, and begin to follow and become like his son, Jesus Christ. He calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. What is the process? What is the process? What is the process from beginning to end for us? What is the beginning of the process? learning of God what is the continuation of the process okay believing in God and the end of the process continuing in the faith until death and then comes the resurrection it's a, it's a process 
So we begin on this road of change and transformation when we respond to the gospel with faith and we express that faith in repentance and baptism if we read in Acts 2 at verse 38. This initial event changes us from lost to saved. It changes us from condemned to justified. It changes us from being outcasts to sons and daughters. It changes us from being prisoners of sin to free from sin and free from death. Another thing that begins to happen to us at this moment is that we receive the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And through the influence of the Holy Spirit, through the influence of God's word, through, yes, the influence of this church, we also begin the process of growth, the process of development, the process of maturity called sanctification. So Paul refers to this phenomenon when he prays that the work, the work of sanctification will be completed when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, we will shed our mortal bodies and be filled with the body that is able to exist in the spiritual world. Now, some people have questions about cremation. I don't know if you should do that or not because of the resurrection, and that is why. But at the resurrection, we have to remember something. At the resurrection, we won't be taking back our old bodies, our old flesh, if you will. No matter what condition, no matter what place it is in, being in the ground, in the sea, or in the urn, Paul prays that in the meantime, until Jesus returns, this mutual honor continues. That is, Christians honor God with their faith, and, and good works until Christ Jesus returns. And God will continue to bless man by helping man to mature and grow in Christ Jesus until the day comes when they will be, when we will be perfectly like him in our resurrection and glorification. This reciprocal blessing should continue until Christ returns and the process of sanctification will be complete. And the process will be complete when sinners will be judged once for all and saints will be brought to heaven once for all. Then we have a thing at work. It's simple and actually I think it's biblical. It's just worded differently. It says, our mission is to get a job keep a job and advance in the job. Our mission as human beings is to get to Christ, continue in Christ, and advance in Christ. I mean, you think about it. It's a process. So Paul, Paul begins his second letter to this young church by encouraging them to persevere in faithfulness in the word. He encourages them to continue with loving kindness to one another. He encourages them to continue with the firm hope of their reward. Now I said there, there, but that's our, our, our. He does this by reminding us of one major 
idea. He's reminding us of one major idea. And it is this. One day, God will bring judgment on all men. One day, God will bring judgment on all men. Those who remain faithful will be rewarded. And sadly, those who don't or reject the truth will be punished. But whether we're rewarded or punished, it all goes back to a decision that we make individually. As we're told, we are to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. Mom and dad can't work it out for me. Children can't work it out for parents. Cousins can't work it out. Friends can't work it out for us. We got to do it ourselves. The reward would be a wonderful reward. The reward would be a reward worth waiting for. The punishment would be a frightening thing. A punishment worth avoiding. You know, sometimes I think, when I read it, I think about Lazarus and the rich man. When he was, he, he called out and he said, you know, if, if he could just take the tip of his tongue and touch it in the, I mean the tip of his finger and touch it in the water and put it on my tongue oh that'll be so refreshing those who are in the bosom of Abraham have a great expectation when Christ Jesus returned those who are on the other side of that the schism there they have an expectation too and they're not looking forward to it so for those individuals over there, I would venture there saying, you know what? The end is going to be worse than this even. So just let this keep going on because I'd rather stay here than transition to the even worse. Whereas those over here in Abraham's bosom said, bring it on. <laughs> Let's move on with this. So if you look around, and you see injustice, if you see wickedness in the world, and I'm sure we do, you don't have to look far to see lazy people, and you don't have to look far to see hypocrites in the church. These may be good excuses for us to get angry, may be good excuses for us to be discouraged, may be good excuses for us to walk away from God and walk away from his church. But these type of excuses only work if you are looking at and taking the short view. Because in the long view, which is God's view, all wrongs will be righted. All liars will be revealed. All the lazy and hypocrites will be exposed. And all the faithful ones will be rewarded. I work as Christians. It's not to judge. We should never say someone is not worthy of us to sit down with them and teach them the gospel. Because when we do that, we are indeed judging. And I've heard it said where people said, I won't dare dare teach you the gospel until you stop doing all those sins I know you're doing. Like it's that easy. It's not that easy. That's judging. So our work as Christians is not to judge. Our work as Christians is not to punish Our work as Christians is not to decide. These are all God's prerogatives. They're not ours. Our job that God has given us is to make sure 
that we are faithful in our lives and witness so that we can share in the glorious witness of Christ when he comes. Our job is to go out into the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that has been commanded of us and remind them of one sure thing as well, that Christ Jesus will be with us even to the end of the age. Let's never forget that there will be both a reward and a punishment. Thank you all for joining me today. Um, We're about ready to get ready for our worship service this morning, so we have time to do a little fellowship and, and preparation for that. So thank you for joining us, and thank you all for your comments.